0: Welcome to Conservation Cafe. This is a podcast for those of you engaged at the front lines of the conservation and sustainability battles. I'm your host, Hillary Wilkinson. I'm a science communication and stakeholder engagement expert. And this podcast shines a bright spotlight on the battles we are winning and even more importantly, how they're being won. Thanks for tuning in.
1: I would say... 80 to 90 percent of the time, mostly people shaking their heads and saying, oh, no, that would never work.
0: On today's podcast, how an East Coast transplant helped convince skeptics in Washington state to embrace innovative stormwater management techniques that are helping restore endangered salmon and clean up polluted waterways. First, though, I want to verbally describe a video that I cannot get out of my head, and I don't think you'll be able to either after I describe it to you. So imagine a fish. It's a coho salmon, to be exact. And it's swimming in a creek, but it's writhing at the water's surface, and it's kind of going in circles. It's obviously struggling, and it's gasping for air. This is a real video of a real coho salmon entering a creek in West Seattle called Longfellow Creek. And eventually the salmon dies, and the reason it dies is because this creek is so toxic from stormwater runoff that it kills the fish. And each year, a local conservation group, documents that about 45 to 90 percent of the female coho salmon entering Longfellow Creek die before they're able to spawn. My guest today is Curtis Hinman, and Curtis has spent a very successful career trying to protect fish, like the one I described, from getting impacted from stormwater runoff. And he's done that by advancing the concept of green stormwater infrastructure. Curtis, welcome to the podcast. Thanks, Hillary. So, Curtis, I'm going to ask you a question to kind of get us kick-started and... It has to do with you and sort of what drew you into this growing world of low-impact development and green stormwater infrastructure.
1: Well, I think the first exposure to low-impact development, although it wasn't called low-impact development back then, was in the East Coast when I was in graduate school. And really, low-impact development was just getting started then. I was in Connecticut and just happened to meet some people that were starting the, the movement back there. I thought it was interesting. It wasn't my area of study and expertise necessarily, but I just I thought it was fascinating. And I was in an urban area and there were obviously impacts, stormwater impacts all around us and the, the river systems there. And when I moved out here for a job interview with Washington State University, they asked, what would you do if you were to try to improve water quality and western Washington what would you bring to the region what kind of program would you develop to help better water quality and conditions receiving water conditions marine or freshwater conditions in the state of Washington and so I proposed low impact introducing low impact development in the region so (laughs) it was just you know timing as lots lots of times it's just timing and meeting the right people and Getting exposed to ideas, new ideas at the at the right time at the right moment.
0: Yeah, that's that's great. So yeah. it started in the East Coast in the United States. Yeah. It sounds like it, the movement began earlier on the East Coast, it, and then you kind of helped bring it out here to Washington.
1: Yeah, it did. Uh, you know, Prince George's County was is often cited as the first location, first jurisdiction to adopt low impact development kinds of tools and principles but there were other areas too in that you know in connecticut people were thinking about the whole aspect of planning and water urban planning residential commercial industrial planning and and how to better manage water and so there were all those efforts taking hold in in the east coast and probably a little less so here. You know, it it sort of migrated across. Actually, I would say it sort of jumped across the country from the East Coast to the West Coast.
0: Okay. Yeah. And tell me a little bit about those early days when you moved out to Washington and WSU hired you on. They obviously liked your pitch of bringing low-impact development here. What was it like in the early days? Did you meet resistance? Was it easy? What was it like back then?
1: I would say, 80 to 90% of the time, mostly people shaking their heads and saying, oh, no, that would never work. (laughs) (laughs) You know, there was a lot of that. And I think anybody working on new ideas and adopting new tools and principles, approaches to environmental conservation probably runs into that. Yeah. Uh, Where especially in urban development, stormwater management, there was, you know, well-rooted practice around centralized gray infrastructure yeah. and so that was it was the world of engineers it wasn't always that way mm-hmm. the landscape architects used to be very involved in water urban water management mm-hmm. but you know much more recently since probably the turn or the mid 1900s and certainly today it's more of the purview of the civil engineer and those civil engineers had adopted you know the gray Centralized stormwater management approach, and that <laughs> was very well ingrained in the uh, in that community. So, a new, you know, distributed, low-impact development approach, getting water back in the ground, using ecological principles and green approaches, green infrastructure was really quite foreign, and there was a lot of resistance. But you know, it only takes. A very few early adopters. Mm-hmm. And those early adopters, those people who are hungry for new mm-hmm. uh, new knowledge and new approaches and for some reason are willing to take on <laughs> new, you know, take the heat for, you know, mm-hmm. adopting new approaches or it just takes a few.
0: I think it's worth pausing for a moment to contemplate this idea of early adopters And how important it is to bring in early adopters if you want to build momentum for something, build broader support for it. There is actually a theory among social scientists called first follower theory. And it's the idea that attracting an adherent to some kind of view or initiative is your first step towards beginning a movement. Like if you go to a concert or at least back in the days before COVID when you could go to a concert – You know, there's always that first person that gets up to dance, and then pretty soon others start to join, um, and those people kind of set the stage, make it safe for others to come and pile on. And those first few that join that initial dancer, they're your early adopters, and Curtis was very successful In finding some early adopters, there were some at the city of Seattle in particular, and there were others in the private sector that were crucial to him beginning momentum on this green stormwater infrastructure movement. And now back to the interview. Could you tell me a little bit about some of the impacts that this low-impact development concept was trying to address and how you communicated that to a broader audience?
1: Well, that really brings in another group, I think, absolutely critical and instrumental to adoption of low-impact development in this region. And and those are people that were working at uh, University of Washington, and they were investigating the impacts of stormwater on receiving waters, particularly freshwater streams and wetlands, and conducting really groundbreaking research around that topic and finding... Some of the findings that were quite dramatic and not known at that time were things like even low, low levels of development, um, rural residential development, can have significant, measurable impacts on receiving waters, on freshwater streams, streams and wetlands, and that was really eye-opening to this region, particularly, particularly, and the country. And so that research was happening right at the same time we were just getting started with this whole idea of rethinking stormwater. And those two came together really nicely. At that time, there was a really a, a big focus on water quantity and how the changes in hydrology or how water flows, or flows to these wetlands or streams how those flows change the physical habitat and there was a lot of attention on that and of course a direct link to urbanization mm-hmm. and uh, the changes of much as you ur- urbanize uh, the flows to streams and wetlands become much more rapid, higher peak flows and all of that came together nicely. and. With that attention and that new finding of the impacts of urbanization on receiving waters, particularly around uh, the hydrology, hydrologic changes, the idea of what are we going to do about it, you know, then, of course, follows nicely.
0: <laughs> right. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Well, that that's interesting. And I know just because I was a newly minted graduate student in 1998 which is right when Chinook were listed under the Endangered Species Act in this region and I believe is when a lot of this research you mentioned coming out of the UW was happening and could you talk a little bit about the how that research coming out of the University of Washington helped kind of bring on board the public in terms of supporting this movement to change the way we manage stormwater mm-hmm. and, the, and specifically the link to salmon.
1: Yeah, I think that's the, the key there is probably the, the link to salmon because there was then the uh, species listings and this idea that this development across the landscape was impacting, impacting salmon, those listed species. I think there actually was and still is today a fairly large leap from... Those realizations for managers, whether at the state level or local jurisdictions and the public, there's more awareness now, certainly. But back then, the idea that we are all having an impact on endangered species and salmon, as well as other aquatic organisms, terrestrial organisms, was maybe hard to swallow, <laughs> maybe it, it was a pretty big leap. And there is still a lot of work to do around that, of bringing the understanding of the public, how to connect with the public, make that an important issue for them, and then also provide solutions that they can take part in. Mm-hmm. And I think we're still doing, a, there's still a lot of work to do around that. So I think back then the biggest impact was was at the state and local jurisdiction level, where managers and department of ecology are realizing we have to rethink. We have to th- come up with some new tools. We need to rethink how we're managing stormwater. If this is such a significant impact, and we're having that impact, even though we're we've been putting gray, you know gray infrastructure in place, we're still having these impacts. Well, what do we do about it? So I think that's where the big impact was, and then public you know there's been a lot of public education and outreach Mm -hmm. since then i think there's still a lot of work to do around that and how to essentially sort of tug on the heartstrings of people Mm -hmm. why is this important to me personally and then what can i do about it and we have a lot of work to do there
0: (laughs) yeah no it's, it's interesting to think about that like where we were 20 years ago how far we've come now, but how much farther (laughs) we have to go because obviously we still have huge impacts out there in this region and the decline of the Southern residents, which is linked to Chinook recovery and all that stuff, which is all linked to stormwater. I'm gonna switch gears a little bit right now. And I've been working with you for a long time and it's been wonderful and I've learned a ton from you. And some of the things that have been really impressive to me of the work that you've done are things like Helping to establish the largest low impact development research center at Washington State University. I believe that's true. You're nodding it's, your head. It's <laughs> one of
1: one of the largest. Yeah, one of the there's, largest. There's some other really impressive okay. installations in the US and now other parts of the world.
0: Great. Yeah. Okay. But mm-hmm. but you were instrumental in helping establish one of the largest in the country. Um, you were instrumental in helping mm-hmm. Washington develop the the US's first certification program for loan pack development professionals. And you were also really instrumental, I think, I hope I'm not overstepping my bounds here, in, in the fact that the NPDS permits in Washington um, now require loan pack development, which I believe is the first in the country to do that.
1: I think so, yeah. yeah. And of course, there are lots of other people
0: oh, <laughs> involved yeah. in that,
1: that the, yes. the permit development, of course. But I helped. <laughs>
0: yes, yes. And, and so what I'd like to do now is recognizing that all of this requires, obviously, lots of different players, lots of people interacting, lots of push and a lot of, so it's a v- very much teamwork. I recognize that. What I'd like to ask you is, could you talk about what you feel are your greatest accomplishments in helping move forward LID?
1: Well, I th- Back in the day, so in the early, early days of adoption, you know, 2000 and the early 2000s, there was a lot of, a lot of resistance to changing from the sort of gray infrastructure approach and really major changes in how we manage water in the urban landscape. And I think one of the keys was when dealing with, so engineers obviously is a key key group. And they want to see for good reason they want to see proof they want to see the numbers they want to see examples and so we we set about two fronts one the first was really pilot projects trying to d- develop the initial first projects to get some of this on the ground and show the engineers essentially as well as the other you know other regulators that so this new approach could work so I think that was key. And so that gets to the early adopters, finding those early adopters, mm-hmm. people that are willing to take some risk, how to distribute that risk equitably so everybody feels like they're taking on a manageable piece of, of the risk pie. And then the stepwise process to put those, put those projects on the ground. And we started initially with projects on paper, I mean, doing pilot projects, taking real pieces of ground and hypothetically changing from conventional stormwater management practices to a low-impact development approach and then doing the modeling around that Mm -hmm. so that brings in of course the other engineers and these and uh, the early adopters people that are willing to take on that kind of project and working with um, jurisdictions to come up with ways to again equitably manage that risk even for projects on paper because it. Takes time. I mean, that's staff. That's um, you know funds, uh, staff time, and so it's a, a significant effort, even when we're just working on paper. So that was to me was really satisfying, and kind of the first steps. And then some of the initial first projects on the ground started to come into play. Meadow on the Hylavos in Pierce County, we mm-hmm. worked on that project with Pierce County, a private developer, and a company called HBL in, in Tacoma. And there was a NWSU all in partnership to put one of the first residential pilot projects on the ground in Western Washington and actually in the United States. And at that time, that project was probably the most studied and monitored. So that was my part and WSU's part, was monitoring the project in detail so that we could show, is this working or not working? And the project far exceeded expectations. And this is one of the first projects and one, I think, one of the first points where engineers, local jurisdictions, and Department of Ecology said, "Oh, this can really work. Like this was a very difficult piece of ground, a dense project, very challenging conditions, and the project actually exceeded design expectations. So those were I think those were moments that stick out for me as far as moving this along in this sort of cooperative reaching across from acad- academia to, you know, private engineering, the local jurisdictions, the state and reaching across all those different" communities and players and bring them together and putting something on the ground that was actually proof of concept.
0: Yeah, that no, that's really interesting. So it sounds like A, congratulations, because that's a huge accomplishment to go from conceptual modeled things on paper to actually getting a project on the ground like Meadow on the Hylebus. And and then it sounds like having that on the ground and showing the successes was really instrumental in getting even more people in the tent and moving this mm-hmm. whole thing forward mm-hmm. speaking of the exceeding expectations on meadow on the high levels, could you speak about what those were like what were the actual quantified mm-hmm. benefits of that mm-hmm. installation
1: again back in those days there was a big focus on water quantity and there still is when you develop a piece of property of land how does the hydrology change the hydrology as far as how water flows over the surface over the grounds uh, the surface of the ground as well as groundwater and how quickly does that water leave the property and in, in what quantity so there was a big focus on the flows coming into and leaving the property and so we were actually able to meet the highest standard even though the designers didn't think it was achievable. No no one thought it was achievable. <laughs> <laughs> no one thought it was achievable that we could actually approximate a forested condition, that is, the amount of water and timing water come, coming off that property being similar to not exactly the same, but similar to what the forested landscape would be. And we actually attained that. Now I don't want to, it would be a lot of (laughs) minutiae, boring (laughs) minutiae to get into details, but we we attained that, that level of flow control performance. And what was so important there was at that time, and I mean, and still today, that is really the only standard that we can say with confidence can actually protect receiving waters. We have other flow control guidelines and regulations, and water quality, water quality treatment guidelines. But they don't, really, the only thing we can confidently say protects aquatic resources, particularly sensitive wetlands and streams, is to match or try to approximate our forested condition. And what that means is basically very little water coming off the site. Very little. So <laughs> almost most, none. Mo-
0: like as if in a forest, <laughs> if rain is coming down, that water is infiltrating into the soils versus running off a hard surface. That's what you're Correct. talking yeah. about. Okay.
1: So in our forested condition, much of, that wa- much of the water that falls out of the sky is intercepted by the vegetation or, or trees and uh, the native landscape. And much of that is evaporated. And then what reaches the ground slowly soaks into the ground and slowly reaches our receiving waters, to a large degree, subsurface. In, as mm-hmm. groundwater, mm-hmm. shallow or deeper groundwater, so we can't approximate. We we can't mimic that precisely, but we can better approximate it, and that's our really the 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 platinum standard for low impact development mm-hmm. is to try to map try to approximate that forested condition. And we were able to achieve that at Meadow of the Hylabos, and everyone was shocked. <laughs> i mean the design everyone the designer i was the designers everybody and it was really an aha moment that oh this stuff could really work because it was quite clear to to be able to attain that standard using gray infrastructure a big pond for example a central you know a big pond at the end of the project the pond would have to be huge huge i mean you have to give up number of lots and building sites to just to accommodate the pond. So there was all of those revelations. And at that point, I think there was then more willingness to listen and move ahead and think about this as a, as our, really our new way of approaching stormwater management. There are other things going on. There are other important projects going on, City of Seattle, Sea Street, the Street Edge Alternative Project that Tracy Tackett design was, you know, revolutionary. So these were all kind of happening similar times and uh, added to that momentum, like, this can really work. Now there's lots of challenges (laughs) to that, but uh, those were eye-opening moments for Mm -hmm. the region.
0: Yeah. Well, thanks for sharing that. Um, So I want to circle back to your mention of challenges. And I want to hear from you um, about some of the challenges that you're facing now in further advancing Lumpac development. Could you mm-hmm. speak to that?
1: Mm-hmm. Well, there are plenty. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, there are plenty. I think we are getting fairly somewhat sophisticated, we're getting better at design. We're starting to understand the design nuance uh, the, these systems, low impact development, green stormwater infrastructure systems are more complex. They take uh, more thought in, in design and they need to be integrated into the planning of a project, which is new, really new for, for many people. Stormwater management has been in the past while well, I, you know, that someone's going to build a project and, Oh, by the way, I'm going to dig a hole over here at the end, you know, where all the water goes. And I'm not really too concerned about that. I just need to put into pipes and get the water to that hole in the ground. <laughs> and now we're with low impact development, green stormwater infrastructure. The stormwater management system is integrated into the project as a whole. And so that's a big challenge. We're getting better at that. I think where we're our biggest challenges lie right now is actually building these systems. So bringing the construction development community along and in their understanding of these systems and their willingness to, to adopt them rather than just you know resist the whole way through a project um, design and implementation. So I think construction actually building these systems is a big challenge ahead of us. Educating a sort of a new community, a development community and builders, equipment operators. The other is there's still significant resistance to adoption of low impact development, even though it's we're sort of the law of the land is low impact development is a first choice for stormwater management, where feasible, there's still a lot of resistance and lack of knowledge on how to, you know, design, review and build. So The proving, I guess, or increasing the sophistication of the permitting, people reviewing projects, Mm -hmm. still have quite a ways to go there. Mm -hmm. For that community, the local jurisdictions permit reviewers, planners, reviewing projects, uh, being able to recognize a good project from one that's (laughs) going to have some Mm -hmm. serious problems, there's still a lot of work to do there. I'm personally not a big fan of the infeasibility approach. That is low impact development is required where feasible. So we have a long list of infeasibility criteria where someone, a project proponent can say, oh, well on my site, one of these infeasibility criteria or more than one applies. And so I just don't want to do low impact development. So we're gonna, we're gonna submit the paperwork to a local jurisdiction saying it's not feasible. Instead of saying, Oh, we have some challenges on this site. What kind of low impact development, green stormwater infrastructure practices can we put in place along with perhaps some gray infrastructure to better manage the water? And there's a big difference between the two approaches. One is just the no, I don't want to do it, and what's the bare min- What's the absolute minimum I need? I need to do to get by, you know. In contrast to the approach of how can we use the tools that we have, and design a, a livable project that manages water better. So. We still have a long way to go there.
0: Yeah, I, I, it sounds like it, uh, sounds like if you could wave a magic wand, you'd get rid of the infeasibility or well, the feasibility I, piece of it. Yeah, I think <laughs> I,
1: you know, I, I, not to, you know, it's coming up with new regulation. Department of Ecology did a lot of really good work and spent a lot of time thinking about how to adopt low impact development as the first choice for stormwater management and incorporating that into the NPDES permit, it's extraordinarily difficult to come up with a system that works for everyone. Mm -hmm. So it's what what was decided and I can't say we we hit the mark exactly, Mm -hmm. uh, but you know, it was I think a good first pass. I think that the whole idea of infeasibility criteria could be refined. Okay. Yeah. Yeah, interesting. <laughs> trying to be diplomatic here. Yeah, no, that's, that's great. And again,
0: you can, <laughs> we'll go there. So I have a question about something that's kind of happening on the national platform right now. And I wanted to mm. get your take on it. You know, this like leading Democrats are pushing this Green New Deal mm-hmm. idea. Mm-hmm. And it occurred to me that it seems to me that there's a really logical fit and a place for low impact development within that green new deal. I haven't heard them specifically mention this kind of work, mm-hmm. but oh. the kinds of benefits of low impact development practices are re- very directly related to what they're talking about. I was wondering mm-hmm. if you've had any time to think about that or I
1: haven't I haven't read or listened to any, any any details around that the green the new green deal the
0: the green new deal the new green new deal
1: (laughs) so I, I don't know any specifics around that but there there's certainly I would think certainly there's there's a there is a fit there there is certainly an economic part to adopting green stormwater infrastructure in that not only is it a distributed stormwater management approach it's also a dis- more distributed economic approach in that for maintenance in particular rather than an equipment operator and one piece of equipment uh, maintaining a centralized facility or for example a vault with cartridges that treat the water and a crane comes in and you take those out and put them back in and sort of one person you know doing or one or two or very few people doing that work Green stormwater infrastructure, again, is distributed approaches, more facilities that incorporate vegetation across the landscape that require care. So there are more people involved in that type of maintenance and maintenance is a big issue for the jurisdictions, how to take care of these systems. But it also provides more opportunity for more people to, uh, for employment opportunity. So there, I, I'm sure there's the Green New Deal. <laughs> I'm pretty sure it would be addressing those environmental and economic, perhaps even social equity and justice issues, triple bottom line. And low-impact development, green infrastructure certainly fits in there to all three of those, yeah. all three of those uh, elements. And there is, there is certainly across the country there is a lot of thinking, a lot of work going on around how to adopt loan pack development nationwide. Some jurisdictions, the city of Seattle, Philadelphia, New York and others are going ahead, full steam ahead and others are, or other major jurisdictions are thinking about that, about how to, how to incorporate this into their, you know, into their, their code and regulation policy. So it's, it fits.
0: Yeah, well, uh, thank you for that. <laughs> and uh, I, I'm sure, hopefully, you're taking some pride in this being looked at seriously across the country and sort of people looking to Washington and its leadership
1: mm-hmm. and yeah. you. A lot of people do look to Washington, mm-hmm. Washington State, Pacific Northwest, you know, Portland, Seattle, uh, but, but generally the Northwest, other regions. But yeah, Pacific Northwest, particularly that Seattle, Portland. Those two mm-hmm. jurisdictions are, are really a lot of attention. A lot of people travel here to mm-hmm. learn about green infrastructure, Yay. which is great. <laughs> this one.
0: Well, Curtis Hinman, <laughs> I want to thank you so much for participating in this interview today mm-hmm. and sharing your thoughts. And I know there's, we could have a much longer conversation, but I <laughs> promise you 45 minutes and we're at the end of our 45 minutes. Okay. Do you have any final parting thoughts?
1: No, just thank you and, uh, and bringing some attention to the stormwater issues and green infrastructure, low impact development, it's wonderful. I mean, bringing all of this is part of reaching the public and raising the awareness around this issue that everyone has a part in this, <laughs> in the problem as well as a solution. So it's, this is a, this is a great, great place to have that discussion.
0: So we've come to that point of the show where I summarize the tips and techniques that we heard from our guests. So Curtis shared two particularly important ones, in my opinion. First, the importance of proof of concept, something tangible on the ground, a project that people can actually see and visit and understand how it functions and that it can be successful. And in his case, it was Meadow on the Hyalobos, which turned out to be wildly successful and really helped people to embrace the concept of green stormwater infrastructure and move it farther around the region. Related to that tip is the importance of getting early adopters on your team. So this is tip number two. Finding those people who are willing to step into the unknown and take a little bit of the risk, a little slice of the risk pie, he said, and help move these things along. So proof of concept, early adopters, and we are now at the end of the show. Thanks for tuning in to Conservation Cafe. I invite you to visit our website, conservationcafe.org, for links to resources I referenced in this episode. There, you can also provide feedback, make suggestions for future topics, and share your own stories of conservation progress. Conservation Cafe is a product of my firm, VEDA Environmental, which helps connect the dots between science, policy, and people. For more info, visit vedaenv.com. I'd like to thank my VEDA podcast team, Marie Roethlisberger, our communications lead, Melanie Del Rosario, content specialist, and Sarah Brace, strategic advisor. Thanks for listening to Conservation Cafe.